I think y'all need to get some different musicians. <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful time of worship through song, isn't it? Already? And just in case uh, some of you don't know me, because I see new faces, which is always good in a church, and especially a Reformed Baptist church, uh, I want to just say that uh, I'm thankful to be able to be a part of this work through Mark, uh, Mark and Allie and his beautiful family, and just to be able to be involved in this from our church down in Columbia, South Carolina. We're Covenant Baptist Church, and uh, we're trying to do what we can to help plant this church here. And uh, Mark does such a wonderful job, so we're blessed to have him involved in this. So I come up as much as I can to preach, and as we're working on his final days of ordination, and then uh, we're just praying God's going to use this church mightily here. It's kind of amazing to think about that there's not as many Reformed Baptist churches around as you would think. Uh, there's one going to be here, this one. And then we've got one in Columbia. There's one more that they don't, they are Reformed Baptist, but they don't put it out as they are. And uh, there's a couple other 1689 London Confessions uh, down there. But in most places, even I, told, I was told in Charleston, it's hard to find too. So it's unique. It really is. And so it's a blessing to be a part of this. And thank you all so much for coming up this afternoon just to be a part of this work on this afternoon on this Lord's Day. Now, the problem is, whenever I'm up here, you're usually falling right in the middle of something I'm preaching at our church, and we happen to be going through 2 Thessalonians. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, I want you to open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the reason why I say it's difficult is because there's a lot of stuff I've said already at our church that I don't have time to go through now, or we would be here literally for four hours. Uh, so I'm not going to do that to you, but I want to try to qualify a few things, speak about a few things, and help clarify a few things here that uh, would help us understand the text. We're really kind of buried right into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 now, talking about some signs of the coming of Christ and the revelation of the Antichrist. Now, I'm fully aware that anytime you come into the Reformed circles, you have about as many views of eschatology as you have people. So just understand I'm very much aware of that. And my view lands somewhere in the middle of it all. And I usually like to tell people at our church, my view's right. So, <laughs> no, I'm just joking with that. But it's, it's good to be able to look at the Word of God. So I just want to try to clarify a few things about this text today. Let me read what it says to begin with. And I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Okay? The Word of God says, Now, brethren... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In the book entitled Hitler's Cross, which was written by Erwin Lutzer a number of years ago, he referred to a very close friend of Adolf Hitler. His name was Rudolf Hess. Rudolf Hess was the son of a German wholesale merchant and a student at the University of Munich, Germany. He wrote a prize-winning essay answering the question, and I quote, what kind of man will lead Germany back to her previous heights, end quote. When he met Hitler in 1920, 
he was struck by the parallels between what he had written and what the man was like who was standing in his presence. Hitler was stirred by the essay and was impressed that the man has such an uncanny insight. And little wonder we know now that they became very close friends. First and foremost, Rudolf Hess said this, if we're going to have a man who's going to lead us into the heights of Germany's past, he said the individual had to be a man of the people. He had to be a man who knew the people, whose roots were embedded in the masses so that he could know how to treat them psychologically. Only that kind of man could gain the trust of the people. However, that would only be his public image. Second, in reality, such a man had to have nothing in common with the masses, for when the need arose, he should not be able to shrink from bloodshed. The public image had to be kept separate from the actual performance. Third, Hess said, he had to be a man who was willing to trample on his closest friend to achieve his own goals. He had to be a man of terrible hardness. And as the needs arise, he must be willing to crush his people with their with his boots. Hitler vowed that he would be that kind of man. He would give the appearance of being one to the masses, but in reality he was quite different to the others. When, brutal, when brutality was called for, he could act with force and decisiveness. He would do so with individuals and also that the masses could not see. He would not shrink from cruelty. Privately, Hitler would prepare for war. Publicly, he would give speeches desirous of, of peace. Privately, he would enjoy pornography. Publicly, he insisted on the right conduct. No swearing, no off-collar jokes in his presence. At times, he could be very charming and very forgiving. At other times, he was very, very cruel. Most other times, he insisted that those who conspired against him be hung on a meat hook and slowly strangled to death with a piano wire the pressure periodically being relieved so that it would intensify the agony of death privately and also sometimes publicly. He prided himself in honesty, yet often he reveled in his ability to deceive. He was the cauldron of contradictions. During his days in Vienna, he would save dried bread and feed the squirrels and the birds. And months after he came to power, he produced legislation that would protect the animals. Yet he worked himself into a frenzy and delight whenever he saw the pictures of the great capitals of Europe in flames. He was especially ecstatic at the bombing of Warsaw and London and angry with the commandant of Paris for not setting the city on fire. He could weep with tenderness when talking to children and then rejoice over the completion of another concentration camp. Compassion and even generous with his family and friends, he would be filled with vindictive rage at anyone, including his close friends who stood in the way of his own agenda. He spoke, as one author said, he spoke with the words of Jesus, but he hated all mankind. Hitler holds fascination for us because his dictatorship really enjoyed a wide range of support from all types of people. Perhaps never in the history was their dictator so well-liked as Hitler. He had the rare gift of motivating a nation to want to follow him. Communist leaders such as Lenin or Mao Zedong arose to power through revolutions that cost millions of lives. Consequently, they were hated by the masses. Hitler attracted not only the support of the middle class, but also the university students and the professors. Hitler arose in Germany at a time whenever the nation was a democracy. He attained power legitimately, however many believe unfairly. The nation was waiting for him, eager to accept a demagogue who appeared to be having the talent to lead them to their future glory, but in fact, he would lead her to the abyss. The people yearned for a leader who would do what they believed democracy would not. Hitler on one occasion said this, I quote, I felt the pressure of destiny. I was summoned by providence to do the will of providence to go into politics. Hitler believed his life was a series of miracles, and indeed it was. But the supernatural power did not come from God. 
It came from hell. Hitler was a snapshot in history of a man who was abandoned by God and abandoned by his own conscience. He was a man of sin. He was a man of lawlessness. He was evil personified. He was influenced by, and no doubt even at times, occupied with demons, if not the devil himself. The cruelty and sinfulness of this man and what he possessed is this only a small drop in the bucket of what the Antichrist will be like in the future. The Antichrist is not a man of sin. He is the man of sin, according to the text we read. He's not a man of lawlessness. He is the man of lawlessness. He is the adversary of God. He is the boastful, blasphemous beast that the Bible talks about. And upon his arrival, he will bring death and destruction unlike any time in the history of the world. Bible teachers tell us, and the Bible clearly affirms, that we're headed to one of the most difficult, unprecedented times in world history of trouble and pain. According to Scripture, it's compared to childbirth, where the pain and the pressure starts off tolerable, but significant. Then it escalates to extreme pain and pressure to the point of excruciating, and in some cases, very extreme, to the point of the death of the mother. In no war, no conquering tyrant in the past ages is going to come close to the evil and the death and the destruction that this man will bring on this planet. No disease, no famine, no virus can hold a candle to the widespread wholesale slaughter of the saints that he will, that he will cause. And all of this will occur at the end of the age. Lawlessness, according to the Bible, will abound and the man of lawlessness will be free to do as he wills. Now there's a text over in Matthew, and I want you to turn there with me. Just follow with me carefully, and I think you're going to find a few things very, very interesting. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. I want to point out a couple of things to you. Matthew 24, verse 21. The Word of God says... In this text, this is the Olivet Discourse. This is the uh, sermon the Lord gave to His disciples uh, regarding the soon-to-be destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And also, He was answering the question of when will the end of the age be and the sign of your coming? So Jesus is literally answering three questions in this chapter. And I want to point out a couple of things I think you'll find very significant. Matthew 24, 21 says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, I don't believe that's just hyperbole. I believe the Lord is actually giving us an indication of what it will be like at the end of the age prior to His return. He refers to a thing called the great tribulation. That's the Greek word flipsis. Megale is the word mega we get great from. The word flipsis is the word we get pressure from. It's the idea of great, intense pressure. He says this great time of pressure and tribulation is a time that will not be comparable to anything else in the history of the world. He even uses some words here that are extremely emphatic in the negative sense. Like, for instance, the word know there, and I'm reading from the New King James, it says that this time will be something that has not been since the beginning of the world until that time, no, nor ever shall be. The word no is the Greek word ude. It means no, absolutely not, not even possible. It could be translated not even. Not even. And then there's two negatives in the Greek language there. You don't see them in the English. But whenever someone was writing down something that they wanted to communicate a very strong negative response of saying no, in our day we might underline it, make it in bold and capitalize it and so forth. What they did is they gave the word no, no twice. And here in this text it's just like that. It's the word ume and it basically means ude ume, absolutely no way whatsoever will there ever be a time like this in world history. 
And then he says in verse 22, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. The word shortened is the Greek word kalabao. It means to be mutilated. Or the Hebrew equivalent word means to cut off or to cut off or to cut short. The idea is that this time of great pressure and tribulation is going to be going on and the saints of God and the people of God are going to be killed and the Antichrist is going to be on the scene literally killing as many as he can that are not willing to follow him and submit to him. And here in this case it says, if those days were not shortened, no one would be saved. Every single human being would be killed. But for the sake of the elect, which happens to be the chosen of God, the church, the people of God, those days will be shortened. Now it says it similarly in, a, in Mark chapter 13. You don't need to turn to it. This is the parallel passage. And Jesus says, For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time. Both passages take us back long before Abraham and Israel, all the way back to creation. As MacArthur on one occasion said, it includes even the flood. Because at least in the flood, eight souls were saved. If the Antichrist were allowed free reign for his full career he would desire to have, he would kill every single human on this planet. The Antichrist is really, in many ways, not literally, but in many ways, Satan incarnate. Now some believe that these passages I just read to you refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And I'll be the first to admit to you that I believe based upon what I read here in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and also Luke 21, that you could easily come to that conclusion. In fact, I'm one that agrees with the fact that there are some of the statements in Matthew 24 and specifically Luke 21 that are indicative of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But I'll be one to tell you that I believe that it's more than that. As is the case with a lot of prophetic imagery in the Old and the New Testament, there's a telescoping of the imagery where God begins to tell you something that is immediately about to take place, but then even in the, even that same prophecy, there's a telescoping out further and further and further into the future where in some cases what was talked about regarding a historical event is actually prophesying also a future event. I'll admit that it is also a challenge to study that and to learn exactly what God's Word means in some of these cases because we don't have all the facts. If you read what it said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says these words, And you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things. And every time I read that, I say, No, I don't remember because I wasn't with you. And I wish you would tell me more. I can't tell you how many people have read this text in 2 Thessalonians and said, you know, I really, really wish Paul would have given us a little bit more information here because he does leave us with some open-ended questions that we're not able to answer. And that's okay. I think the Lord intends that for us to keep us humble and anticipating our own study of Scripture regarding that. Now, going back a moment to the 70 AD destruction, there are scholars who tell us that the passages I read to you about the horrific nature of this great tribulation refer only to that time in Israel's history in 70 AD. I'll give you just a couple of uh, examples of that. One author said this, The sieges may have witnessed scenes of physical wretchedness equally appalling, but nothing that history records offers anything parallel to the fanatic hope and frenzied despair that attended the breaking of the faith and the polity of Israel. Another author said, No nation has ever piled up guilt so much like the Jews did who were the chosen of God, infinitely blessed, and yet they crucified the Son of God and trampled upon further grace. No judgment had ever and can ever be so severe. In the history of the world, no judgment can be compared with this that wiped out the Jews as a nation. Edersheim, the Jewish historian, wrote these words, The tribulation to Israel was unparalleled in its terrible past and its history, and unequaled even in its bloody future. Nay, so dreadful would be the persecution that if divine mercy had not interposed for the sake of the followers of Christ, the whole Jewish race that inhabited the land would have been swept away. Another commentator and 
article I read regarding this said this, it was the worst event in their history. It represented the death of Israel nationally, though the Holocaust involved larger numbers, the type of suffering inflicted on Jerusalem was unparalleled in history, the acute famine, the infighting among the Jews, the cannibalism, the savagery, savagery, and the crucifixions were horrible beyond words. Wives would snatch food away from their husbands, children would take the food away from their fathers, and most pitiable of all, mothers from the very mouths of their infants would take the food. Deserters who were allowed out of the city told of corpses everywhere stacked up, left and left unburied. So crazed was the hunger of the defenders of Jerusalem that they resorted to eating their leather belts and their harnesses. Even on one occasion, there was the record of one of the ladies there that was a mother. Her name was Mary. She killed her infant son, roasted him, ate half of him, stored the rest for later, and whenever the rebels showed up, offered them some to eat. That is what was going on behind the walls of Jerusalem. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak, unarmed, yet they were butchered. There were heaps of corpses mounted higher and higher near the altar, and records tell us that the streams of blood flowed down the temple steps, so much so that even the bodies of the slain that were at the top of the altar would slide down to the bottom. There was no pity for age. didn't matter if you were a child an old man, a layman, a priest, you were all butchered. And those are the ones that were gripped by the savagery of war. Even if you cried out for mercy or offered resistance, you were killed. Now some say that that is the worst event. And probably as far as Israel is concerned, you might say it probably was the worst event. But it is not the worst event in world history by far. In fact, if you were to look just in a very simple way, take about three to five minutes on the internet and look up the atrocities of history, and you'll be gripped with the horrors of what has gone on in the past that are unequaled in many ways. That even in some cases go way beyond what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Just for instance, in World War II, there were 3.3 million Soviet soldiers who were POWs who were captured by the Nazis and they were deliberately starved, left to, the, to be exposed to the elements and endured horrific acts of cannibalism. Later on, or earlier rather, we learn of the rape of Nanking or Nanjing Massacre in 1937, where the Japanese invaded China's northern province and captured the capital Peking, who is now Beijing. The Chinese resistance was so strong that the Japanese immediately slaughtered thousands of soldiers who had surrendered to them. The Japanese then rounded up the other 20,000 young Chinese men and transported them in trucks outside the city walls and they were killed in a massive slaughter. Japanese troops were then encouraged by their officers to loot Nanking and slaughter and rape Chinese populations at will. For six weeks, the life of the Chinese in Nanking became a nightmare. Bands of drunken Japanese soldiers roamed the city murdering and raping and looting and burning at whim. Civilians, Chinese civilians who were stopped in the street and found to possess nothing of value were immediately killed. At least 20,000 Chinese women, it is recorded, were raped in Nanking during the first four weeks of the Japanese occupation, and many were mutilated and killed when the Japanese troops were done with them. The Japanese troops were also encouraged by their officers to invent ever more horrible ways to slaughter the Chinese population of the city. When the bodies of the burned Chinese choked the streets and the gutters ran with blood, they had to figure out another way to refine their methods of slaughter. So batches of Chinese civilians were rounded up, herded to the slaughter pits. Some of them were buried alive. Others were killed by the sword. Some were used as bayonet practice. Some had petrol poured on them and set ablaze alive. The bodies of thousands of victims of the slaughter were dumped into the Yangtze River until the river red ran red with the blood. 
of the Chinese. In a twist of all of that, a German businessman and a Nazi party member named John Rabe was appalled at what he saw happening to the Chinese civilians. Both men and women, elderly and tiny children, were put to death by Japanese troops in the most horrific brutality. Rabe tried to save as many of the Chinese as he could by creating a safety zone on his own estate. He appealed to Adolf Hitler to intervene, and Adolf Hitler refused. No surprise there. Why do I bring that to your attention is because the Bible says that in the latter times there's going to be a time unparalleled in human history, trouble, pressure, persecution, and death unlike anything we've ever seen. Hitler, Antiochus Epiphanes of Daniel 11, Nero, and many others we could refer to are only glimpses into the career of Antichrist. They are, as John said, a Antichrist, but they're not the Antichrist. The one referred to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the one that even John talks about in 1 John chapter 2, the Antichrist is the one who will meet his fate whenever the Lord returns in the brightness of his coming, which tells me he's a future man. He's a future man. All three of the men in history that we often look to as representations of the Antichrist, whether it's Hitler, Nero, or Antiochus Epiphanes, were the embodiment of evil. The, sweet, the, the sphere of their influence, however, and the cruelty that they brought onto the people was regional, limited, some more than others. However, whenever the Antichrist comes, based upon the text of Scripture, both Daniel and Revelation, his influence and cruelty will be worldwide. And his reach will be worldwide. As I told you in Matthew 24, Jesus answers three questions. What are those questions? Tell us when will these things be in verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming? And then what will be the sign of the end of the age is what is assumed by the text. Three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What is the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, the disciples had an eschatology. Their eschatology was based upon the Old Testament. And much like many of us, we know that we have gaps in our eschatology. And they had a whole lot of gaps because they didn't have the New Covenant in the New Testament that gives us a lot more information. But the point was is that they looked at these events that Jesus talked about as one event, the same event. If there was going to be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, then that meant to them that Messiah was going to set up his kingdom. That's what they believed. And they were looking forward to that event. It's called the parousia. That's the translation of the Greek word coming there. And the word parousia means presence. It doesn't mean leaving heaven, coming to the earth. There's another word for that. This means what is the sign of your presence on this earth? I mean, he was standing literally in front of them. So they know he's there, but they're not asking that. They want to know what do we look for that tells us that you are going to set up your kingdom and what you what is the end of the age? What is the sign of the end of the age? And by the way, in their mind, the end of the age, according to Matthew, was not the end of the Old Testament covenant. The end of the age was what Matthew referred to on two other occasions, the end of all things, the end of the, the last age, if you will. Because in Matthew 13, he talks about the end of the age there twice, and that's at the time whenever the angels come and reap and separate the wheat from the tares. That's the end of the age. There's only one other time, other than Matthew 24, where the end of the age is used, and it's in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go out and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. The end of the age was not, in Matthew's mind, the end of the old covenant. The end of the age was the end of the age. The end of all things. The time of judgment and the time whenever Jesus would be coming back. So whenever Jesus talks about this, as I told you, he is literally telescoping out and giving us more information other than just Jerusalem in 70 AD, but launching out, if you will, into the future to talk about the end of the age. Now, when he talks about the 
the time of the great tribulation that I just read to you in a couple of verses, both Matthew 24, 21 and also Mark 13, we have to ask the question, when exactly is this to occur in the chronology of the events in the mind of Christ? Now, I know that there's lots of people who have different ideas about how things will flesh out as far as eschatology is concerned in future events. But I want to show you something very interesting that tells me that Jesus had much more in mind here than just the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because whenever he talks about the Great Tribulation, he has in mind here something that even the prophet Daniel talked about that is clearly a reference to a future event. Let me show you what I mean. Let me remind you now, first of all, before we go to Daniel 12, and you can turn to Daniel 12 and see this for yourself, but in Daniel 12, there's a prophecy given by uh, Daniel, in fact. He's writing it down. And it is actually almost a word-for-word -word quote that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 in the Septuagint. In Matthew 24, 21, remember this. Jesus says, Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And we ask the question, where did Jesus get that from? Did he make it up? Well, he could have, because he, he wrote the Old Testament. He's God, right? So that's no problem there. But is that, where, is that what he did? Did he just make it up? Is it something new? Well, not, in, not exactly. In fact, in Daniel 12, this is where he takes this from. If you remember in Matthew 24, 15, he says that you need to look for the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So he immediately launches us back to look at Daniel. You're not going to understand future eschatology if you don't understand the book of Daniel. It's not possible. You need to know the book of Daniel as much as you need to know the New Testament books. But in Daniel 12, listen to these words. Daniel 12, 1. And at that time, Michael shall stand up this is Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Listen to these words, the next three sentences. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. That's almost identical to what Jesus just said. This is where this comes from. You say, well, what is Daniel talking about? Is he talking about a historic event? Is he talking about 70 A.D.? Well, no, he's not. He's not talking about either one of them. You say, how do I know that? Well, if you read a little further, it says, at that time, he says in verse 1, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the final resurrection. He's talking about the day of judgment. In fact, this parallels clearly what the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and also 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Every one of them. It's almost as if these guys read the Old Testament. Or maybe were very familiar with Daniel. Because it tells us that, if you'll notice again in verse 1, it says, at that time. That builds upon the previous chapter, chapter 11, whenever there's the willful king who comes to do whatever he wills, which is a reference, no doubt, to Antiochus Epiphanes, but it is also a type of the Antichrist. It is a future event also. So in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, and then at that time, is the point, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even until that time. And then he says, which is wonderful to hear, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Folks, that's Matthew, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's when Jesus shows up, he gathers together his saints. It's Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31, where it talks about Jesus shows up in the sky and he gathers his elect from the four corners. He resurrects the dead who are in Christ and transforms us who are alive at that time whenever he comes back. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Not all of them, 
Not all of them because Jesus is resurrecting his own people at that time. But then there's this broadening of it, some to everlasting life, and eventually, some no doubt, to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the whole scope of eschatology wrapped up in two verses. Right there. You know, Jesus would have also been familiar with Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, which says, Alas, for that great day, so that none is like it, and there is a time of trouble. It's called Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jesus was familiar with those words also. So what did Christ link the great tribulation to? Again, asking the question, is it a past event? Is it over? Is it done? Or is it a future event? Well, I believe based upon the way Jesus uses the terms here, it is a future event that he's referring to. No doubt, clearly, there is a reference here to the horrible tribulation and persecution and death that the Jews experienced in 70 AD. But as I told you, it's more than that. It's more than that. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. There's a linking, a grammatical linking of events in this text that is undeniable. It's like chain with links in it. And if you chop one of the links out of the chain, you'll miss the point of the passage. But these grammatical links are essential to understanding exactly what Jesus is talking about and when he is talking about this taking place. So if you'll remember in chapter 24, verse 21, Jesus says, for then there will be great tribulation. Well, we need to know what the then refers to. For then there will be great tribulation. Well, the then refers to the immediate context, which is beginning at verse 15, when Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, he tells those who are inhabitants of Jerusalem to get out of Jerusalem. Then Jesus says, for then there will be great tribulation. Did you see that, that connection? The abomination of desolation is directly tied to the great tribulation. In fact, we could go as far as to say that the abomination of desolation spoken of here that is referred to by Daniel the prophet is indeed the catalyst that starts the great tribulation. But there's another link. And the other link, if we were left just with those passages I just read to you, if that's all we had, we would probably just say, okay, this is Jerusalem 70 AD, done, over with, let's go home. That happened in the past. But there's another grammatical link. And I'll show you what that is. Look at verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So listen to what it says here. He says, Jesus does in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, what I just read to you would happen. This is the other grammatical link. Well, let me ask you this. If you read verse 29, what tribulation is he talking about? Well, what's the context? Back up a couple of verses. Verse 21. The great tribulation. For then there will be great tribulation. Abomination of desolation happens. As a result of that, there's great tribulation then. Now, immediately after that tribulation, it says there's going to be cosmic events. If we were to take that literally, then there would be cosmic events. If we're to understand it symbolically, then it just refers to coming judgment. But the point is, I grant you, based upon the words that are used here in this text and how Paul uses them and how the rest of the New Testament uses them, that the event in verse 30 and 31 is a literal return. He's not talking about metaphorical, allegorical, symbolic. He's not showing up just in the sense of judgment. He literally shows up. The words that are given in verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then also it says in verse 30, and they shall see, that means to see with their physical eyes, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. 
And then he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and he will sunagage, episunagage, gather together the elect. That's the gathering together of the saints of God that I just read to you earlier in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Paul uses that same word in noun form, but here it's in verb form. But the point is, is that these events, without a doubt, refer to what Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians and also 2 Thessalonians 2. In fact, as one author pointed out, and I thought it was amazing to do that, there are some of the words that Paul uses, some of the Greek words that Paul uses, that are not used anywhere else except in this text. That's interesting. Whenever you look at what the Word of God says in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul says this, I say to you by the Word of the Lord. In other words, Paul says, I didn't make this up. I didn't go to the school of Gamaliel to get it. This I got directly from Jesus. And so he's using the same words and the same terminology and the same uh, events. So my point is this, is that this horrible great tribulation is tied to an event called the abomination of desolation, which is also tied to the coming of Christ. So this is not just a historic event. This is catapulting us into the future at the time whenever the Lord comes back. And he's coming, and whenever he does, he's going to bring judgment upon this world. But before he does that, he's going to take his people away. We get out of here. We're out of here before the wrath of God starts. Now, I went through a whole lot of that in detail with you to help you to understand where I'm going with the man of sin. So I want you to go back to 2 Thessalonians with the last few minutes we have, and we're going to address a few things about this text. Some of it I'm going to have to share with you in very limited form because I don't have time to go into all of it, but I think it's very, very important for you to understand. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 Listen to Paul's words. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Sounds like he just read Matthew 24, 30, and 31. In fact, the word coming is the same word Jesus uses. The word parousia. Whenever the disciples ask him, what will be the sign of your coming? This is the word that Paul uses. And also the word gathering together. In this text, episunagage, same word used by Jesus, but only in verb form. He will gather together his elect. This is what we could call the rapture. Now, if you're uncomfortable with the term rapture, just understand I'm not talking about Hal Lindsey. I'm not talking about left behind series. All right. The word rapture is a Latin word that comes from a word that is translated from the Greek. The Greek word is harpazo, and it means to snatch or to seize. And it's actually used in a violent way in a number of contexts. But the point is, it's a very rapid snatching away. And then they took the word harpazo translated into Latin, come up with a Latin word, raptus, which we get the word rapture from, and then everybody took the word rapture and made all kind of rapture movies out of it, and all of a sudden we got all kind of weird theology floating around, and people think, any minute now, Jesus is going to come, and planes are going to crash, and cars are going to go south, and you know there's going to be clothes lying all over the place, and uh, you know, don't we wish we were all ready? What's that song? <laughs> The point is, is this, Paul is talking about an event called the parousia, which is the coming of Christ when he gathers us together to him. And this is an important point to remember. Biblically speaking, there are not two comings of Christ. There's only one. He doesn't come and leave and then come back seven years later. He comes and then he stays. That's the text. That's what it's telling us. He comes, he gathers together his own, his elect. These people here in Thessalonica were being shaken because someone was spreading the word that they were already in the day of the Lord, or maybe the Lord had already come back. They were really confused. I mean, after all, they didn't have the New Testament like we have today. They had the first event when Paul showed up and taught them some things about the return of Christ. And then he left for a year, and he comes back, and they're already messed up. False teachers are going around. Prophets are going around claiming they have a word from the Lord. Even before the TBN network was going good. And they were telling them, look, you know, guys, I hate it for you. You missed it all. The Lord's already here and you're in the day of the Lord. And they were in some bad times. I mean, this is the time of Nero. So they were experiencing horrible persecution and what was coming their way was not going to be pretty at all. So Paul had to write to clarify a couple of things. And what he does is this. 
he clarifies the coming of the Lord by telling them, this is important, the coming of Christ is not a signless event. It's not a signless event. You say, how do you know that? Because Paul says so. He says in the text, notice it with me. Look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you. Okay? Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, it refers to the day of the Lord of the day of Christ, which by the way is the cataclysmic supernatural day of God's wrath on this planet. Whenever he shows up, the day of God, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So in other words, the day of the Lord or the, the coming of Christ will not happen, emphatically will not happen until there's an apostasy and the man of sin, which we know as the Antichrist, is revealed. I remember hearing many years ago pastors say things like this, I'm not looking for the Antichrist, I'm looking for Christ. Or like one said, what is blessed about the blessed hope when you're looking for a blasphemous beast? And all that sounds nice, but it just doesn't square with the text of Scripture. Listen, do you realize this? There's not a population on this planet that has ever been permitted to escape persecution. Yet we think because we're Americans, we're exempt. We get a free ride out of here before any of this goes down. But the Bible says God has appointed you to suffer. And the Bible teaches us that there's going to be times whenever the saints of God are handed over to the Antichrist and will be killed. In Revelation chapter 5, it talks about the souls of those that are under the altar and they're crying out for God to bring vengeance because they had been slaughtered for the word of God and their testimony. The point I bring is this, is that the coming of Christ is not a signless event. There are two signs that Paul says have to happen. One is the apostasy. The second one is the revelation of Antichrist. The apostasy comes from the word falling away. It's the word apostasia. It simply means a falling away, religiously speaking. Now, it can refer to rebelling against a civil authority, but whenever you look at the word in the Old Testament, Septuagint, and the New Testament, without exception, it always refers to a religious apostasy. More specifically, what we're talking about here is the kind of apostasy that says this. I at one time affirmed, said, professed, confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then I walk away from the truth of the gospel and of Christ and deny it. That's apostasy. I'll read a couple of verses to you that you may be familiar with. 1 John 2.18 1 John 2.18 Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, the Antichrist is coming, even now, he says, there are many Antichrists who have come by which we know it is the last hour. Then he identifies who the, these Antichrists, plural, were. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out from us that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This is the classic example of someone who comes to a church, makes a profession of faith, claims they know Christ as their Savior and Lord, confesses even the doctrines of the church, and then walk out later on to deny the very thing they said they believe. That is apostasy, and that is the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The point is, if you are Antichrist, you deny the Father and the Son. You deny the very cardinal doctrine of the gospel itself of who Jesus is and who God is. This is critical for the next few weeks whenever we finally look at some of the other topics regarding the Antichrist because if the Antichrist is coming and the Bible talks about him showing up, then this is important to know what kind of doctrine he brings. His doctrine denies the Son and denies the Father. That's what the Scripture says. Now the apostasy here assumes something. The apostasy assumes that there's a very large number of people in the church that are not real. Because if this is a sign of the coming of Christ, guess what? 
that means you need to see it. And if it's just a small little isolated event in Thessalonica, and we're all over here, and they're over there eating their Thessalonican food and enjoying their time over there, and there's an apostasy happening in that little church, we're not going to know about it. But if it's worldwide, and it's on a scale that gets the attention of the world church, the, the true church, then what we should expect is, is that right now there should be a large population of people in the church that are really not saved. Really not real. Jesus talked about that very thing, that there would be those soils that would receive the seed and some would last for a little while and then they would spring up and tribulation would cause them to fall away or the cares of the world and money would cause them to fall away. That's exactly what the Antichrist will use in the future to cause the apostasy, by the way. Persecution, tribulation, the cares of the world, and money. One other thing. Currently, I believe the stage is being set for this very event. The context and the atmosphere of the church and what's happening right now regarding the state of the church has been at work for some time. You could go all the way back and you could probably go further, but you could go back to the preaching of Charles Finney, evangelist Charles Finney, who brought about the invitationalism and the altar call and the anxious bench and easy believism and doing whatever it took to manipulate the will to get people to respond to the gospel. And he even said of his own, his own ministry that he had produced many temporary converts. And then you had the rise of easy believism, the denial of the lordship of Christ and no repentance. All you had to do was believe the facts and that has literally led thousands if not millions of people into a false faith. And then church rolls are full of people that don't know Christ. Especially in the Baptist circles, particularly the Southern Baptist churches, they are full of people who don't even attend the church at all. Like most uh Southern Baptist churches, and I can speak of that because I used to be a Southern Baptist preacher, is that they'll have large populations of membership, like a thousand people on the roll, and 90 people will come to the church. Well, where are the other 900 people? The Southern Baptist Convention boasts of 14 million members, but only 9 million show up. Where are the other 5 million? And most of the 9 million don't even show up on a regular basis. The point is, is that over the years, we have literally filled our roles with people that aren't converted. They're not saved. You cannot be a Christian at all. And, uh, you know, I don't want anything to do with God's church. I could care less about the church of Christ. In fact, I'll go to the lake or I'll do this and do that. No, no, it doesn't work that way. If you truly love Christ, then you love the body he died for. That's what the Bible says. So enough of this nonsense about people, well, you know, they have a hard life and They've got to do this, and they've got to do that, and my goodness, COVID's going to be around for the next 20 years, so we need to stay home, right? Really? Another thing that really concerns me, I think is just bleeding into the church in massive amounts and causing a right, right church for apostasy is the abandonment of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is coming about primarily by the encroaching and ever-growing neo-Pentecostal charismatic hyper-faith movement. I mean, this stuff is massive, folks. It has enveloped all of the American continents and Africa. It is the dominant religion and belief and doctrine in those areas. By far. The internet has not helped us at all on that. In fact, it's hurt us a lot. I don't know if you listen to or watch Justin Peters, but Justin Peters recently came out with a video of one of the self-appointed pseudo-prophetesses named Kat Kerr. Now, if you want some entertainment, you could watch that. But she is a really, really interesting character. She has pink hair, and she believes God told her to make her hair pink. But beyond that, if you want to have pink hair, that's up to you. But... She claims that she goes to heaven not once a year, not once a month, but many times every day. And she goes to heaven and God tells her all this stuff, which most of it's very bizarre. And she comes back and just stands out there in her little studio in her YouTube channel and just starts spouting this stuff and everybody's sitting there saying, oh yeah, that's wonderful. That's great. Yeah, God told you this. She has 44,000 subscribers for her YouTube channel. Now, 
I told our church this morning, because we have in our church a number of people who are over 70, so no reflection on Pat and Jim. You guys are young. But like my mom, she wouldn't have a clue what a YouTube channel was, and she definitely wouldn't know what would happen if you subscribed to it. And uh, so whenever you subscribe to a YouTube channel, what that means is whenever they, whoever they are, produce something on their YouTube channel, it's going to show up in your YouTube so that you get to watch it or listen to it. So 44,000 people are on the subscription to Cat Kerr. That's only the beginning of it. Because whenever you go to Joyce Meyer, self-appointed false prophetess Joyce Meyer, she has 764,000 subscribers. Kenneth Copeland, think about this. Kenneth Copeland gave his false prophecy of blowing away COVID. And COVID still hung around for two years after he blew it away, right? And he has 350,000 subscribers still. False teacher T.D. Jakes, who's a denier of the Trinity, has 1.6 million. It gets worse. Southern Baptist. False teacher Stephen Furtick has 2.19 million subscribers. False teacher Joel Osteen has 2.4 million subscribers. To put that in perspective, one of the most well-recognized and capable gifted scholars and expositors of the Word of God is John MacArthur. And Grace to You Ministries only has 596,000 subscribers. This is a serious problem. A serious problem. The advent of the Pentecostal, Neo-Pentecostal, Charismatic, Hyperfaith, Prosperity Movement has devastated the evangelical landscape. It is leading people into doctrinal dumbness and deficiency, and it is staggering. Each year, whenever the survey comes out for Ligonier and or Lifeway, whichever year they do that, you'll notice the trend the young people are getting dumber and dumber in their theology and they have no clue what they believe. No clue what they believe. Young people are leaving churches that don't even teach the whole counsel of God. In fact, what they teach is not even the counsel of God and they'll leave and go to a secular university and be immersed in anti-God atheistic secularism and then they will have what faith they did have completely deconstructed. You want to make sure your children end up unbelievers? Send them to Caesar. Let Caesar have them for four years. See what happens. If your child goes into that, you need to make sure that they are well equipped, well grounded in the Word of God because every satanic attack on their faith will be sitting in that classroom to deconstruct them. This has led to the point that if the Antichrist showed up right now, if he were to show up today, he would need no help for an apostasy. There would be hundreds, if not thousands, or millions who would leave the church and say, nope, no problem, not going to give my life for that. No, not at all. Well, there's much more I have to say about that. But I'm not done by any means. Let me close with a couple of thoughts and then we'll finish this up, okay? He's called in this text the man of sin, the son of perdition. That simply refers to his character or the man of lawlessness. Like we're called sons of light, all right? It, it says that we should be sons of purity and righteousness and light, truth. Well, he's called the son of lawlessness, anamios, without a law. doesn't refer to just no law at all. I mean, he's going to have his own laws. He's going to make up some laws, and he's going to demand that you keep them. But his point is, he has no desire or willingness to obey the laws of God. They're out of the picture completely. But he's also a son of perdition, which means he's a man of destruction, characterized by destruction, and no doubt leads to destruction. That's what this man is. But the Bible says in the text here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, that he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God so that he is, so is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I'll just finish with this one word, oppose, here. I don't have time to finish the rest of the text. 
But the word oppose here in this text simply means this, that he is against or adversarial. The word actually does mean to be an adversary. It's translated of the devil. It's used of the devil as an adversary. It's used over in Galatians where it says the flesh is contrary to the spirit. That's the same Greek word to oppose. The point is, is that the devil will oppose, or rather the Antichrist will oppose anyone or anything that claims to be God or is worshipped as God. Now that is so, so important. Because what that tells us about this man called the Antichrist, listen to this carefully, he is not ecumenical. He's not going to join any religions together. He's not wanting to bring the Catholics and the Evangelicals together. That's not what he's after. He wants to get rid of all the other religions, and he's it. And you worship him and him alone. Behind the Antichrist is the devil. The devil for a long, long time has wanted to be worshipped. He even tempted Christ in the wilderness three times to worship him. He's not satisfied with it yet because he hasn't got all that he wants. And he's going to go after it with everything he's got whenever this happens. So he opposes, he's the adversary of anything that is called God or that is worshipped as God. So the point is, he will be opposed to every religion, period, that affirms any other God than him. Now think about that for a moment. That means that we are in the crosshairs. Because we don't affirm any other God than the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we say, oh no, no, you can, you can take that little claim to be God, you can take that home, buddy. We don't believe that. Jesus is the only God. Well, in that case, you're now the target. You're now the target. And another group that's going to be targeted is going to be the Jews. The Jews are still affirming that the God of the Old Testament is the only God. There's only one God. They repeat the Shema of Israel. They know the Old Testament Ten Commandments that you are not to worship any other gods or have any God, other gods before them. They were instructed over and over again whenever they went into the land of the Canaanites that they were not to worship their gods. And they understand that, so they also will be targeted. But any religion, period, that affirms any other god than the Antichrist will be a target because he will not affirm any of them. He will claim to be God. He will claim to be supreme over all gods and you are to give your allegiance to Him and to Him alone. Well, let me close with a few thoughts regarding what we talked about at the very beginning. Hitler was just like that, by the way. He was a god unto himself. He believed that he was empowered by supernatural powers beyond himself. He was involved in the occult, incarnation, Darwinianism. Anything he could get his hands in that he believed would give him power, he would do it and use it. But one of the lingering questions has always been, why did the German people, and more particularly the church in Germany, not part ways with Hitler once they knew his agenda? As this author says, we might understand their initial deception, but why did so many hundreds of thousands of Germans directly or indirectly participate in the atrocities that became so much a part of the Nazi agenda? These multiplied thousands of otherwise decent Germans boycotted Jewish businesses, participated in mock trials, brutally controlled the prison camps. In short, Hitler had helpers. He had millions of helpers who did his bidding no matter how despicable the assignments became. Erwin Lutzer closes this paragraph by saying, Is it true? Is it true, as some have suggested, that the Germans of Hitler's era are somehow half-human and half-demon, the likes of which will never appear on the earth again? Was historian Friedrich Mieke uh, correct whenever he suggested that the Nazis were a fluke or an accident in history and in all probability will never really occur again? Or as Lutzer puts it, were the Germans not only human, but fully human? Simply human without veneer. Human without 
constraints and human without God. That's where you end up whenever you banish your society from God, the Word of God, and the law of God, you end up with a lawless antichrist. I don't want to leave you with the bad news. The good news, according to Revelation 19, is the antichrist is finally thrown into the lake of fire. He's already a defeated foe. It's just God's allowing him to do his deed for his own purposes, God is. But one day, his evil will be brought to account, he will be judged, and he will spend eternity in hell. But meanwhile, before all that takes place, you and I as believers, according to the Bible, need to be prepared for the persecution that's coming. We live comfortably here in America right now. It wasn't just a few years before that they had a nice democracy in Germany and things were peaceful. So we need to be careful and be ready to trust the Lord in all of this. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank you so much that we have the privilege to be reminded of these truths. And Lord, as hard as it is to hear, we ask you, Lord God, that you would prepare our hearts as believers Help us, Lord, to be ready, ready for the return of Christ, but also ready for the persecution that may come. Lord, help us to teach and to train our children in such a way that they know Christ, they know His Word, they understand the truth. I pray, Father, for this church and churches like it, that You would make them strong, that You would make the people in the church strong, committed to Your Word, committed to the things of God, unreservedly, absolutely to the glory of God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.